Lord, we need you. Lord, we need you in every moment of our lives. And Lord, specifically in this moment, Lord, we need you to teach us your word. Lord, I am a mere man, and there is nothing but mere men in the seats. Lord, apart from you, as we just sang, our life is in vain. Lord, apart from you, as we know in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we cannot understand the things of you. Lord, you sent your Spirit to indwell us, to teach us, to point us to Christ. Lord, may you do that now in this sermon. Lord, may you use me to proclaim your excellencies, to proclaim your oracles. And Lord, may you prepare the hearts to hear, to discern. Lord, may we be like Bereans in our understanding of the word. Not taking my word for anything other than what it is, but Lord, your word, may that sink in. Lord, may you keep my lips from wandering. May you focus our attention, our hearts, and our minds upon you, the one who is worthy. Lord, exalt yourself. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this morning, we are going to be looking at Hebrews chapters 1 through 2. If I was preaching more often, which, which I'm not, as you know, my role is, is changed. I am, I am just a lay person at this church now, and so... Um, special occasions like this, I'll be up here, but I won't be preaching through anything anymore. Um, and so, because of that, I want to cover all of Hebrews chapters 1 and 2. Um, if we were doing a sermon series, it'd be a lot shorter, we'd, we'd really dive in. But I want us to cover all that's spoken about of the angels in Hebrews chapters 1 and 2. Because Paul kind of uses chapters 1 and 2 as this introductory to the entire book of Hebrews, declaring this is who Christ is. And when we see in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1, this is really what our, what our sermon this morning is, is considering Jesus. Because in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1, and therefore if you don't have your Bible, get it out because you're going to need it heavily this morning. A lot of verses will be on the screen. But in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, the author gives his first exhortation in the book to the listener. Everything prior has been fact. Here comes the first exhortation. Therefore, holy brothers, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Considering Jesus is what our aim is to do this morning. Because the author of Hebrews goes at length to describe, to tell, to declare to us, the listener, who Jesus Christ is, which has extreme implication on our life. We need to know who Jesus is because we need to worship and adhere Him as who He says He is and who the Scriptures proclaim Him to be. And if you look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 through 18, we need to consider Jesus, not just for who he is, but we need to consider Jesus in this specific time when tempted with sin. For he says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to help to those who are tempted. You see, Jesus Christ was tempted in every which way we are, yet endured perfectly without sin. And so when we get to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, and it comes, Therefore, holy brothers, partakers, listeners of the sermon, you and I, those who profess to be of Christ, consider Jesus when tempted with sin. Because it is only in Christ in which we can have victory over our sin. And if you flip ahead to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, we're given the other reason why we need to consider Jesus. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us take hold of our confession For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Church, when you sin, consider Jesus and go to the throne of grace to receive the forgiveness that he purchased for you on that cross. And so this morning, in Hebrews chapters 1 and 2, we are going to be looking at this threefold considering of Jesus in our lives as this is the exhortation for us to live by. First and foremost, who Jesus is. As we've said several times here at this church, and I said it last week in the sermon in Jonah, we worship God because of who He is. And that is, Alone, We worship him because of who he is. The author of Hebrews goes to great lengths to describe to us who Jesus is. And then how this relates to our future hope and how this relates to the life we live now. Primarily in how we deal with temptation and how we deal with when we fall into temptation. And so this book of Hebrews is written to a group of Hebrew believers Probably some Gentiles poured in, but primarily the audience is Israelites. It's, it's Jewish believers in Christ who would have then been well familiar with the law. They would have known the Old Testament. And as you'll see in the book of Hebrews, there's a lot of Old Testament quotations, a lot of Old Testament references, a lot of things whom Jesus is compared to, Moses, Joshua, Melchizedek. And so if we don't have a working knowledge of the Old Testament, it might be pretty difficult to understand what the author of Hebrews is talking about. But this morning, I am going to do my best to make all of this make sense. Why is he talking about angels? What's the point of the references to Moses, Joshua, etc. later on? And so I really do believe that this book is kind of like the key to unlocking the Old Testament scriptures. If we can understand the book of Hebrews, the Old Testament is going to make a lot more sense, and vice versa. So, let's dive in. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God. Right away, the author of Hebrews says, God having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, church, we should read this and recognize right away that God is active 
He is living and he has something to say to you and to me, specifically in this time. It should remind us almost of the wording of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. Well, where did God come from? He has always been and he always will be. In the beginning, God. There is no creator of God. He simply has always been and he always will. God is whom scripture is about. God is whom the book of Hebrews is about. And we see that demonstrated all throughout scripture. God creates. Then God destroys when mankind sins. And then God redeems the people from their sin, purchasing them from Egypt. And then all throughout we see this theme happening over and over and over again. Israel falls, God redeems them. Israel falls, God redeems them. And the climax of the story is when Jesus Christ, God himself, comes in the flesh. To live the life that we couldn't live, but we're supposed to live. To die the death that we didn't die, yet we're supposed to die. To resurrect to new life, fulfilling for us this future hope that we have, that we too one day will resurrect physically with Jesus Christ to where we get to be with him forever. And the, the cool thing is the picture that we see all throughout the Old Testament is this is Yahweh your God, this is Yahweh your God, this is Yahweh your God. And then we find out in the New Testament scriptures that Yahweh our God is Jesus Christ. It's always been about him. You see, my shirt this morning that I'm wearing is purposeful. It says, Soli Deo Gloria. In the Reformation in the 1500s, when the church was being reformed, they came across five pillars of the church. We call them the five solas. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Because we recognize that this book, first and foremost, is to glorify God himself. As we studied this morning in Joshua, in the, in the Bible study, before the service begins, we have the angel commander of the Lord go to the Israelites before they go into Jericho. And we know that that is God himself, pre-incarnate Christ. And Joshua bows down before him. And God tells him, take off your sandals for this is holy ground. And Joshua says, are you for us or against us? And he says, neither. I am for the Lord. Well, of course we know that he is for the Israelites there as well. But he is declaring the very truth that scripture declares. God, first and foremost, is for himself. And secondarily, he is for us. Jesus Christ came primarily to glorify his Father. Secondarily, to forgive us of our sins. And as we see, both in the book of Hebrews and in scripture together, God is glorified through the reconciling of us, sinful man, to him, holy God. And it can only happen through the God-man, Jesus Christ. So God is living, God is active, God has something to say. And as we see here, it says, God having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. You see, in the Old Testament scriptures, you will see God communicate with the people in a variety of ways. As he says, Many portions, many ways. We know visions, we know dreams, we know prophets, we know angels. God communicated in several different ways. Now, he says it's changed. God communicates through his son. 
through His Son, Jesus Christ, who is the living Word. God communicates to us through Jesus Christ. John 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This Word, the living Word, the God-breathed Word. If you look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, For the Word of God is living and active. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God, literally, tra- literally translated, God-breathed. God speaks to us through the work of Christ and the Word of Christ. No more prophets. He speaks to us through His Word. And what does He speak to us in His Word here? In these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things. God speaks through Jesus, who is the heir of all things. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, we read that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The heir of all things and the firstborn of all creation is the same thing. It's the same phrasing. Because if you are the heir of all things, that means you are the rightful heir because you are the firstborn. And so here in Colossians, Paul is playing off the idea that in the Hebrew culture, the oldest son was the possessor of the inheritance. We see that played out in several stories in Scripture all the time. That's the problem with Isaac and Ishmael. That's the problem with Jacob and Esau. That's the problem with Joseph and his brothers. There's always this question, who gets the inheritance? And God says here, Jesus does. It's his He is the heir of all things. He is the firstborn of all creation. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, a text that will come up several times in this sermon, we read, Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Jesus Christ, the heir of all things. The ends of the earth are his. And in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus Christ says before he ascends, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And so even though Jesus is the rightful heir and has been from eternity past, we see that Jesus had to, in a sense, earn his inheritance by humbling himself to become a man, again living the life we couldn't live, dying the death that we deserved, resurrecting, conquering death. And now, as he says, the authority has been given to me. It's always been his, but he earned it, as we'll see later in Acts chapter 13, through the death and resurrection. We'll see that this has great significance on our lives, because this is really important. Because if you remember, think back to Matthew chapter 4, Jesus tempted by Satan in the wilderness. The third and final temptation, Satan takes him up onto the mountain, and he says, look out. Jesus and Satan looking out over everything. And Satan says, you want it? I'll give it to you. Bow to me and I'll give it to you. All the ends of the earth are yours. Now you can think Satan doesn't have that permission, but the reality is Satan does, in a sense, have that permission granted by God. Satan at that time is the ruler of this earth. All Jesus Christ has to do is skip the cross, skip the suffering, and he'll be the possessor of all things. Worship Satan, skip the suffering, skip the cross, and I have everything. Yet Jesus knows that he can't skip the cross. 
in order to actually inherit all things as the heir of all things, as the firstborn of all creation, the one in whom the inheritance is due, Jesus Christ has to suffer. He has to go through the cross. Satan likes to tempt us the same way. The reason we often give into sin is because in the moment it is easier. It is joy producing at times. We don't care. There's a thrill to it. Jesus lived through that temptation perfectly. And that gives us hope that we can, the next time we are tempted, do the same. In these last days, he has spoke to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. Jesus Christ is the creator, the author of Hebrews says. We just sang about it. Jesus Christ is the creator. In John chapter 1, verse 3, it says, All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that, got, that has come into being. You see, when you read Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We always think, God the Father, neglecting the fact that the New Testament scriptures teach us that it was Christ himself who created the world. We read this in John 1, we read it in Colossians 1, For by him... All things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Jesus Christ is the creator. And this is wildly significant because if Jesus is the creator, then that makes him God. You see, what the author of Hebrews is going to do in this entire section is show us in 17,000 different ways why Jesus is God. Because there might be a lot of you in the seats who have wrestled with this thing. Man, I just wish Scripture would flat out tell me Jesus is God. Or why didn't Jesus, when he was walking the earth, just tell the Pharisees, I'm God? And he did. He did and he continues to do in his word. It's all over. I was talking with somebody the other day and they said, I'm just wrestling with the Trinity. I can't understand. I can't grasp how Jesus is God. And I took them to one passage and they're like, oh, and that makes sense. And that was kind of disappointing to me because I wanted to show him 17,000 other passages that also say the same thing. We know today as 21st century believers that Jesus is God, but do we know why? Or do we know where? Or do we know how to de defend it? This is so important to our faith. Jesus being God means that Jesus has the right to tell us how to live because this life is not ours, it's Jesus's. All things belong to him. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is God. And to continue, he is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature. Amen. Jesus Christ, the exact representation of the Father's nature. You see in Colossians, again, chapter 1, verse 15, He says, he is the image of the invisible God. If you have seen Christ, you have seen the Father. In John chapter 14, verses 7 through 10, Jesus just gets done telling them, hey, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Jesus is speaking to the disciples. From now on then, you know him and you have seen him. Hey, disciples, you want to see the Father? You've seen him by looking at me. Okay, got it? Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Like, Philip, did you not just hear what Jesus said? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is us in our humanity. We are Philip. Jesus, just tell us how to live. Jesus, just tell us who you are. 
He does in his word. And Jesus says to them, Have I been so long with you and you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Jesus Christ, the exact representation of the Father, the radiance of the Father's glory. Continuing on, he says, and he has, or, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus Christ is our sustainer. You see, he's not just the creator, but he is also the sustainer. We see in Colossians 1.17, Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus Christ literally sustaining everything. We read in the Gospels, Jesus says, not even a sparrow can fall to the ground apart from the Lord's doing. We read in Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast and the decision belongs to the Lord. We read all over scripture, kings and rulers are put in places because Jesus put them there. Jesus controls everything. This is his world. He causes the air in our lungs. Every single breath and heartbeat. Jesus sustaining and causing. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the sustainer. It's so beautiful. Think about this. Driving in a rainstorm, every single drop of rain falls from the sky from Jesus Christ's sustaining hand and hits your window at the very time Christ himself ordained it and splashes in the very way, in the very direction that he ordained it to do. There is not a molecule on this earth that Christ himself is not holding together at every single moment. If Jesus Christ is that powerful, oh man, ought he to be worshipped. So he upholds all things by the word of his power and he has accomplished the cleansing for sins. You see, in the Old Testament law, there was the sacrifice, the sacrificial system that temporarily forgave sins for a time. Yet it was always pointing to a future fulfilling, an all-satisfying accomplishing of the cleansing of sins. This is one of the giant themes in Hebrews chapter 9. How Jesus did this. In Hebrews chapter 9 verses 11 through 14 we read, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Church, this is why we consider Jesus. His sacrifice was once and for all. It is enough. This is why we can come to him when we fall into temptation, in those times of desperation, in those times of need, where we think, man, there is no hope for me. I just sinned in the same way 16 times in a row. Why do I do the things that I do? The author of Hebrews says, go to Christ. The sacrifice was once and for all. It was sufficient for you. His blood covers you. Go to him. Next, he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ 
sits down signifying completion and that he is on the throne because he is king. Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. Now we see, continuing on in verse 4, Jesus Christ has become so much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. If you read later in Hebrews chapter 2, which we will get to, you see that for a little while Jesus Christ lowered himself than the angels. You see, right now we are lower than the angels. There is a hierarchical system and we are below them. The angels are greater beings than us, kind of. They're perfect. They have to be. Yet in all of eternity, we actually usurp them. We go above them. Jesus Christ now is better than the angels, but when he humbled himself to become a man, he even humbled himself to be under the angels. That's crazy. Jesus Christ created the angels, but he lowered himself to be below them. And what we're going to see is so that he could reconcile us to him. But Jesus Christ, having become so much better than the angels, as he sits at the right hand of the throne of God, he is better, so much better, the author of Hebrews says. And he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now in verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say? For. To prove that Christ is superior. The author of Hebrews says. Let me show you why in several Old Testament texts. That prove why Jesus Christ is superior. And the only way Jesus Christ can be superior is if Jesus Christ is God. So let me show you why Jesus Christ is God. Then he quotes Psalm chapter 2 verse 7. Which says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Because to which of the angels... Did God the Father say, you are my son, today I've begotten you? None. He said that to Christ. And again, hold on to this text because at the end of the sermon, the author of Hebrews does something crazy with it. I will surely tell you of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Jesus Christ has always been the son, but it is fulfilled in the resurrection. You see in Acts chapter 13, verses 32 through 39, as, as Paul is preaching the gospel to the Jews, he relies heavily on this point, and he even references this verse. Bear with me, Acts 13, 32 through 39. And Paul, in the middle of his sermon, goes, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, in that he raised up Jesus... As it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your holy one to undergo decay, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed from through the law of Moses. Paul says, hey Jews, 
It is not David who the psalm is about because David died and underwent decay. It is about Jesus Christ, the same Christ that you just killed. It is about him because he didn't undergo decay. He resurrected and in his resurrection, he proved that Psalm 2-7 is about him, that he is the only begotten son of the Father. And now, Jews, despite your sin, church, despite your sin, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will receive the forgiveness of your sin. Because it is only through Christ, it is only through this beloved son whom we can believe and free us from our sin. It is only in Christ. Jesus, always the begotten Son, now fulfilled in the resurrection as he inherits that position. Continuing on, he says in 2 Samuel 7 14, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of men. You see, this is about Solomon. Is Jesus going to commit iniquity? No. Which is why the author of Hebrews masterfully says this first part of the verse is about Jesus. It's not about Solomon. It's about Jesus. And what we see is two verses later, he says to Solomon, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Quite simply, he says, Jesus is king. It is Jesus who is our king now. And forever. Jesus is king. It is Jesus' kingdom that endures forever. Which brings us to the next verse in chapter 6. And he again brings the firstborn into the world. And he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Worship who? Who are the angels of God worshiping? They're worshiping Jesus. Now that doesn't make sense. How could the angels of God worship Jesus? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, we see here, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. God is one. But now we're told here in Hebrews that the angels of God worship the firstborn. They worship Jesus. How can the angels worship Jesus and worship God the Father? Because Deuteronomy 6, 4, they're one. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. You see, church, if Jesus isn't God then God is somehow sharing his glory with another. Either that or we are worshiping someone who isn't God. And oh man, if that's the case, let us be damned. But we know from Scripture, Jesus is God. Jesus is King. And that is why we worship him as such. And so Psalm 97, verse 7, says that. But when, when the Psalms are about Jesus... The entire psalm is about Jesus. It's not like the history where part of a verse, the author of Hebrews says, this part of the verse is about Jesus. The psalms are all about him. And so if you looked at Psalm 97, verse 1, it says, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. And Psalm 97, 9, for you are the Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted above all the gods. And in, Hebrew, or in, in um, Psalm 97, 7, that we just read, the verse that the author of Hebrews quotes, let all the angels of God worship him. They're talking the angels of God worship this God, the Lord, that the entire psalm is about. And the author of Hebrews says, yeah, that psalm that talks about the Lord, the most high over all the earth, that's Jesus. Yahweh is Jesus. Jesus is the Lord who reigns. Then we get this weird verse in verse 7. 
and of the angels, he says, so he shifts. What what does God say about the angels? Of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers flaming fire. Now there is great debate on this verse, whether this verse is referring to the origin of the angels as as if they come from, from flaming fire and wind, or the role of angels as they act like fire and wind. Scholars are perplexed, but whether it is origin or whether it is role, Christ's superiority over them is shown. As Christ has no beginning, the angels have a beginning. And if it is role, if if this verse is referring to the role, we know that Christ is in control of the angels. I believe that this verse is talking about the role. As we see in verse 14, it says, Are the angels not all ministering spirits sent to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? It seems like the author is talking about the difference in role here. Again, perhaps a moot point. But what we're about to see here in verses 7 through 14 is a major contrast between the angels and Christ. In verses 8 and 9, he says, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of uprightness uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. The author of Hebrews, again, taking a psalm that is about God and saying it's about Christ. And so we see here again that Jesus Christ is king. This is something that is shown in Nicodemus too. If you remember Nicodemus from John, he's shown three times. John chapter 3, the great story. Jesus tells Nicodemus, how can you you believe things from heaven if you can't even believe these earthly things? Nicodemus, you ought to know this stuff, man. You're a teacher of the law. Yet we find later in John chapter 19 that Nicodemus finally gets it. As we see in Psalm 45, 8, all your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. In John 19, 39, after Jesus Christ has died, Nicodemus goes and anoints Jesus' body with a mixture of myrrh and aloes. A kingly anointing. Why? Because Nicodemus recognizes, oh, Jesus is God. He's not just a great teacher. He is God himself. Jesus is God. Jesus is king forever. The angels are his ministers. In verses 10 through 12 of Hebrews chapter 1, we read, O Lord, in the beginning you founded the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they all will wear out like a garment. And like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Again, this is Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27, which is why it is up there. Again, Jesus Christ is creator. When the Psalms are talking about God, they're talking about Jesus. Jesus Christ is the creator. Jesus is eternal. God never changes, according to this verse, neither does Jesus. Later in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, we read the all-famous verse, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why? Because Jesus Christ is God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. Verses 13 through 14, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet? Are they not ministering spirits sent to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? 
You see, Jesus is David's Lord. Even Jesus himself says this. This psalm is about David, but then we recognize that it's actually not about David. And we see in Psalm chapter 2, verse 34, that David recognizes that this psalm isn't about him, even though he's writing it. But Jesus says this to the Pharisees in Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. Jesus began to say, how is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. Why? Because the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was going to come through the line of David. Jesus, one of his names is Jesus, son of David. And the Pharisees had no problem recognizing that Jesus was this man who is the son of David. And Jesus says, he's more than that. He's not just the son of David. He is the Lord over David. So how, is, how am I, Jesus Christ here, speaking to you Pharisees, the Lord of David, if I'm just now existing? Because of what we just read. He's eternally existed. He has always been the Lord. He is God. And Jesus there tells the Pharisees, hey, I am God. And he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's sitting there with the enemies being made a footstool under his feet. Just like we read in chapter 1, verse 3. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus Christ is king now. And he is establishing his enemies as a footstool under his feet. He reigns, Jesus Christ, and him alone. Now we get into chapter 2. And it says, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. For what reason? What reason must we pay close attention? Because of who Jesus is. All of chapter 1, Jesus is God, Jesus is creator, Jesus is king, Jesus is on the throne, Jesus is the heir of all things. For this reason, church, who Jesus is, let us pay attention, because if we don't pay attention to this one fact, that Jesus Christ is God, then we will drift away. And he continues, we're going to hit on that in a second. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, every trespass and disobedience will receive a just penalty. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That salvation, first spoken by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. See what the author of Hebrews is saying. For this reason... Who Jesus is. We have to pay attention to what we have heard. What have we heard? The gospel. Who Jesus is. What Jesus has done to save us, to redeem us. We have to pay attention to that message because of who Jesus is. And if we drift away, that's bad for us. Because if you thought the message to the angels, as the law was given through the angels, proved unalterable. How much more this message given by God himself, through God himself, as he became a man, died the death that we deserve. You see, in Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 6, and Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews goes at great length to make this point known. Do not drift away. Do not drift away. Focus on Christ. Consider Christ. Do not drift away from this truth or dangerous waters are ahead. We see in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, one which enters within the veil. 
Why is our hope compared to an anchor? Because if we have an anchor, we're not drifting away. That's why you drop the anchor when you're on a boat so that you don't drift. The apostle that is writing Hebrews says, Don't drift, church. Cling to the hope that you have in Christ. And do not drift from this truth that Jesus is God because it has great significance over your lives. So great, in fact, that if you thought the Old Testament was harsh or hard, the author of Hebrews says this in 28 and 29 of chapter 10. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? If you think God was wrathful in the Old Testament, it's more so in a sense today. We have the fulfillment of the promise. They had a future hope. We have the hope. He's saying don't drift. And in Hebrews chapter 12, he says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those who did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on the earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. You see all the stories of the Israelites perishing in the wilderness? Don't think, whew, glad that's not me. Think, that is motivation for me all the more to cling to Christ. God testified with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. How did God bring forth this message? Signs and wonders. The apostles, that's the book of Acts. It's being lived out. We just studied in men's Bible study last Friday morning. They're preaching the gospel and signs and wonders are happening to affirm the gospel. And here it's affirmed to us in the gift of the Holy Spirit because we have the Holy Spirit in us, which means that you're going to be equipped with giftings of the Holy Spirit, not by your own will, but by his will working through you. Now chapter 5, or chapter 2, verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. This world to come, this future hope that we have is not for the angels, it is for you and I, brethren. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and you have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. I have to speed up as I'm running out of time. So I'll try and make this quick. Our role when we were created was to do this, that all things would be subject to us. Through Adam's sin, we messed this up. So we, all things are not subject to us. All of creation is not subject to us. It's supposed to be, but it's not. Christ coming down, living like us, partaking in the same flesh and blood as us, dying resurrecting, ascending, now has all things subject to him. This is the point the author of Hebrews is making. Because now all things are subject to Christ and he has resurrected and is seated there in heaven, this is the fulfillment of the promise to us that we too one day will finally live out our role that we were supposed to live out in Genesis yet squandered through sin. Does that make sense? So Jesus Christ having all things in subjection to him means that one day all things will also be subject to us because we are fellow heirs with Christ. 
Now, this should be mind-blowing. Because if you look at your life, you should think, there is no way that I deserve that. Like, yeah, I'll take heaven, but there is no way I deserve to be a fellow heir with him. There is no way that I deserve to be a fellow ruler with him. Yet in Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 and 27, when Jesus Christ himself is writing to the churches, he says, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. That is a direct quotation again from Psalm chapter 2 that has been about Christ this whole time. Now Jesus himself makes that about us. Psalm chapter 2, that was about David, then was about Christ, and now is about us. Why? Because Christ is in us. And just as Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning where all things are subject to him, that proves that one day we too will be seated with him where all things are subject to us, just as it was supposed to be in Genesis. I hope that that makes sense. If not, we will study it more one day. We will dive into it because this is so important to how we live. This is the hope that we ought to cling to. You see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5, through 5, he talks about this hope. That's the hope. We are living in a sinful, fallen world where we are so prone to sin. And then when we sin, we're prone to get down on ourselves. Yet church, it ought not be that way. If we consider Jesus Christ, we get that hope. We have this to look forward to. Jesus Christ is our brother and we live with him for all of eternity, partaking in the same role that he has. Verse 9, but we do see him who was made a little, while, a little while lower than the angels, Jesus, because of suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Again, Jesus Christ lowering himself. Why? To the praise and glory of his name. How? Through the bringing of many sons to glory. The bringing of many sons to to glory. Now if we look at verse 10, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For it was fitting for him. Fitting to do what? What was it fitting for Christ to do? Bring many sons to glory. How? Through sufferings. Wait, who? Jesus. I mean God. I mean Jesus. Jesus did this. For who? Those in whom he authors their salvation. Jesus Christ saw that it was fitting for him to leave heaven, to humble himself, to partake of the same flesh and blood that we are, so that he can glorify the Father through bringing us to glory, to perfect our salvation here on this earth. And now he says this, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers. This book has all been about Christ is God, Christ is God, Christ is God, and now he says you are one with him. Both he who sanctifies Jesus and those who are being sanctified, us, are one. And he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Why is he not ashamed to call us brothers? He says in Psalm chapter 22, the next verse that we see, I will tell of your name to my brethren. 
In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Jesus says that he will testify to us, the brothers, about the glory of God, which is himself. Again, in Psalm 22, 8, for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. It's about Jesus. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. He rules over the nations. And somehow, someway, we get to as well. In verse 13, I will put my trust in him. Isaiah 8, 17 and 19. I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Jesus says we are his brothers, and then he says we are his children. Why are we his children? In Isaiah 53, 10, this is prophesied. That he would render himself as a guilt offspring and through that he will see his offspring. We are Christ's offspring. Yes, we are his brothers. We're also his children. Behold, I and the children whom God has given me, we know that we can only come to faith in Jesus Christ if the Father above has given us to him. We see in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And then in John chapter 17, Jesus prays for his children, those whom the Father has given him. Jesus prays for you, for me. Jesus Christ prays for the brethren. He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, Father, but you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. And he says in verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word. This is you and I. And in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. Why? So that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus says, Father, thank you for giving me these children. Now let me bring them into glory where they get to see my glory that you have given me. Because seeing Christ's glory is the greatest thing imaginable. Then we get to verse 14. Therefore, since the, children in, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. Again, the only way that Jesus Christ can do this is by looking upon his children and saying, I have to become like them. And he does. And why does he do it? He does it so that he can free us from the evil one. He can render powerless the one who is evil. That is the devil. You see, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, Satan has no power in your life. He is powerless. Satan is powerless over your lives. Because Jesus has freed us from that. That reality that you're seeing on the board in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-3, through 3, that you were dead, that you were following after him, that you were a child of wrath, that is no more. But what is true now is Ephesians 2, 4-6. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when you were dead in your transgressions, even when you were a child of Satan, made you alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him, look at this, and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Jesus completes the purification and he sits down at the right hand of God. Why? To declare that he is king to rule over the nations. He says here in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are with him there. We are in Christ as he rules. In all of eternity again, we have this hope that we will rule with him. Not as God, of course, under him. But that is beautiful. Beautiful. 
We are free. We should not give ourselves over to sin so easily. In Romans chapter 6, verses 21 through 23, we read, Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? What benefit comes from sin, brothers and sisters? I know this all too well in my life, as it is so easy to fall into sin even as a believer. And you look and you think, what benefit is there? You're spurning the name of the Lord. You're bringing shame to perhaps those around you. I do this. What benefit is there from sin? Temporary satisfaction in light of eternal satisfaction? There is no benefit to sin. For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin, church, we are freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit. Sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are slaves to God. And because of that, we get sanctified now in eternal life forever and ever, which is knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. Church, we ought not sin. Church, we are alive. Church, we are not dead. Church, we are not under the power of Satan. For Christ has rendered him powerless. We are in Christ and in Christ alone. And in verse 16... Assuredly, he does not give this help to angels, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. Yep, despite you and I being lower than the angels, he does not help the angels. There are fallen angels. They didn't get help. They don't have a chance at redemption. Read that in Genesis. Read that in Jude. Read that in 2 Peter. Those angels are done and gone. We, in our sin, while we were enemies of God, and now even in our sin as believers of God, he comes to give us help. And how does he give us help? Through, cons- through causing us to consider him. You see, this is really, really important. In verses 17 and 18, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. There's that big word again. We looked at it on a Wednesday night if you were with us. Propitiation, it, it means literally satisfied. In order to satisfy the wrath of God, Jesus Christ had to come and die. This wasn't something that Jesus Christ could have just snapped his fingers, swept our sin under the rug. Jesus Christ had to die. As we were studying the word this morning in, in Joshua, Shelley had said something that is a really cool picture may be a convicting picture. When we sin, it is as if we continue to nail the spikes into Jesus Christ's arms. Why do we continue in sin? Our sin, past, present, and future, cost Christ his life. It's hard for us to even pray for our enemies, let alone die for them. Jesus died for us. And he didn't just die for us and say, now you're servants of mine forever. He died for us and said, now you're a fellow heir with me. The role that I have, you get as well. That should motivate us to pursue righteousness, to consider Christ. For verse 18 says, for since he himself was tempted in that which, we, in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to help to those who are tempted. Jesus Christ can come to your aid when you are tempted with sin. 
Jesus Christ can come to your aid when you are tempted with sin. I'm repeating it because I need to hear it. Because it is so easy to give into sin when we are tempted. And it is so easy to just think, it's okay, I'm forgiven, there's grace. But church, it ought not be that way. Christian, it ought not be that way. Jesus Christ can come to your aid. That's why he came. Yes, he is God, and yes, he ought to be esteemed as God, but he also came to help you defeat temptation. He himself was tempted, and that which he has suffered, he is able to come to those who are tempted. He is able to come to help those who are tempted. And if and when we fail, again go to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. We must draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy to find grace to help in time of need. Whether it's the temptation of sin or the after effects of giving into sin, Jesus Christ, the God-man, our King, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, the one in whom all of Scripture is about and for His glory, He can come to help you. Both to fuel righteousness and to forgive sin continually because his sacrifice is once for all jesus christ lower than the angels now higher than the angels seated at the right hand of the father we now lower than the angels but have the certainty that one day we too will be higher than the angels seated with christ our lord forever and ever getting to reign with him and rule with him and just partake in eternal life with him seeing the glory of god forever and ever This life matters, church. He didn't leave you alone in this life, but he came to help us in time of need to fuel righteousness and to forgive sin. We ought to then, as Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 proclaims, consider Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, you are good. And Lord, we know from your word that you are God and you alone Yet you are God manifested in the Spirit, manifested, Lord, in Christ, manifested in the Father, not as three separate beings, but one, and not in three separate manifestations, but all at once, all the time. The relationship between Jesus and the Father, the relationship between the Son and and, and Jesus and the Father, Lord, it's complex, it's mysterious, yet, Lord, we know you are one. We know that Jesus Christ is God. And, Lord, we know what it cost you God himself, Lord, what it cost you to pay for our sins, to satisfy your wrath. You didn't have to, yet, Lord, you wanted to. Out of glory for your name and love for us, Lord, you humbled yourself. Lord, let us humble ourselves. Lord, let us live for your glory. Lord, let us consider Jesus in our worship, in every part of every days in in our lives. Lord, let us worship Jesus. And Lord, when we need help, When we are tempted, Lord, let us consider Jesus. Lord, when we sin and fall short and are beating ourselves up, Lord, let us consider Jesus. Lord, when we think that the world around us is so full of despair and hopelessness, Lord, let us consider Jesus and the promise that we have in him. Lord, glorify yourself in our lives. In Christ's name I pray, amen.